Jim Elliott was the well-known missionary sent to minister among the Horanani Indians in Ecuador, but was martyred in 1956 after only a very short time on the field. Uh, Jim Elliott was only 28 years of age when he died. In his preparation for the mission field, he penned many different memorable reflections, quotes, words of wisdom, and prayers in his personal journals. You can read books like Shadow of the Almighty. That would be one of them. And among those prayers, he famously prayed one prayer that has been thought-provoking for many Christians since he was martyred, including your pastor. Here's what he said. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. That was a bold and mature prayer, wasn't it? I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. It's as if Jim was already in heaven before he got there. It's as if he had the wisdom of a 90-year-old saint living in a 20-something-year-old body. But even in his 20s, Jim Elliott grasped how brief our time on earth really is. He certainly didn't know he would die as early as he did. But Jim Elliott understood something that we need to be reminded of again and again, right? Tomorrow is never promised. In his prayer, he compared his mortal life on earth to a stick he broke off in the jungles of Ecuador, a branch that was alive and connected to a tree or a vine in one minute, burning in a fire in the next. But his prayer was specifically not that the branch would be cut off and just somehow wasted, thrown away for no purpose. No, he prayed that his very life, like a stick thrown in a bonfire, would burn brightly and warmly for all those who would draw near to it. And to this end, he prayed that God would light up his very life and even consume his life for the Lord's good pleasure and purpose. And again, note, he didn't pray for a long life. How many of us are quick to pray that? But no, he prayed not for a long life, with generations of memories, marriage, children, grandchildren, traveling and retirement, scores of life experiences behind him. No, he simply but courageously prayed that his life would count for eternity regardless if he lived a long time on earth or a short one. And by the way, guys, there is no such thing truly as a long life anyway, because on the grand scheme of eternity, whether you live to be 90 or 19, it's still a dot. doesn't really matter. According to God's timetable, we're all here for a very brief time. Jim prayed for his life to be lived to the hilt, lived to the fullest, lived to its maximum potential all for Jesus Christ, who perfectly embodied what that meant in his life and death for us. Brothers and sisters, what do you and I need? Not in order to live a long life, but to live a full life for the Lord Jesus Christ. A life that is lived on purpose and for a purpose. 
and for a purpose that is truly a kingdom of God blessing to others and counts for eternity. What do you and I need in order to be laser focused on following Jesus Christ and to know what he requires of each one of us for the rest of our lives? Beloved, if you follow Jesus Christ sooner or later, you will eventually ask questions like these. But the flip side is also true. The longer you and I follow Jesus, sooner or later, other believers will ask you and I questions like these. Questions about life and death. Questions about looking for fulfillment and finding your purpose. Questions about jobs, retirement, relationships, money, children, joining churches, leaving churches, pastoring churches, serving churches, discipling, missions, and the list goes on and on and on. Friends, to follow Jesus with our lives, it inevitably involves the joy, the blessings, the challenges, and the privilege of helping others follow Jesus in their life too. Discipling is about one life set on fire for Jesus Christ, investing in another person's life to see the gospel advance, the church built up, and Christians conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Friends, is that your definition of a life well-lived? Is that your definition of a life lived to the fullest? Is that your burning ambition and purpose in your life today? Or is it something far less than that? Well, this morning we'll look closely at the eternal impact that can be made when serious Christians teach and model for other Christians what it means to fully follow Jesus with their life. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 578 and 579. And if you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. Last week we left off in verses 1 to 9 in chapter 3 in our current sermon series, in an effort for Paul to lovingly forewarn Timothy of the difficult, demonic, and dangerous days ahead of which Paul called the last days, the days since Jesus' first return to his last return, his final return, we are living in the last days. Paul and Timothy were in AD 60s, we are living in the last days in 2023, and he spouts off that what is characteristic of these last days using 19 characteristics of what Paul, Timothy, as well as Christians like us will face in life and ministry. Uh, to summarize that long list, if you weren't here last week, you can re listen to the sermon. Uh, it basically summarized it this way. Basically, the core issue Timothy would face with people is that people will be fundamentally lovers of themselves over and above lovers of God. So much that even those who profess to be Christians, even those who lead and teach in some churches, among some of them, will be wolves in sheep's clothing. Spiritual con artists, religious hucksters, 
self-deceived false converts who are members and leaders in churches, but they are not born again. Paul described these men, such as Janus and Jambres, as those who sneak into the sheepfold and take advantage of weak and vulnerable women. Thus, the combination of immoral, immature, and naive women being led astray by nice, charming, and deceitful men, it would only bring havoc in the church there in Ephesus. And thus, the combination would also be true in many churches even today. So what did Paul admonish Timothy to do? What does Paul admonish us to do when those kind of people creep into the church? Look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Mark them. Warn them. Warn others about them and avoid them. Do not speak with them anymore until they repent. Do not trust them anymore. Do not give them any more attention. Avoid such people. But Paul not only warned Timothy about these difficult days ahead and these deceived and deceiving wolves, he also gave Timothy positive instructions moving forward as well. He did this again and again over those 15 years that Paul and Timothy were in partnership in ministry. And he did this through reminding Timothy and exhorting Timothy to stay the course. To stay the course, even if hard times come and people turn out to be not who you thought they were. Look with me now at 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. You're taking notes. I have one main idea followed by a few outline points. Here's your main idea. I'll repeat it twice. Imitate closely those who follow Jesus closely and stay this course the rest of your life. Imitate closely those who follow Jesus closely and stay this course for the rest of your life. So how do we do that? How do we imitate closely those who follow Jesus closely? And how do we stay the course, not just this week, 
not just for the rest of the month, not just for the rest of the year, but for the rest of our life. Two points that I'll draw out to answer these questions from our passage today are the following. Point number one, remember and look for faithful Christians to learn from for the rest of your life. Remember and look for faithful Christians to learn from for the rest of your life. Point number two, be a diligent and teachable student of God's word for the rest of your life. Be a diligent and teachable student of God's word for the rest of your life. In verses 10 to 17, Paul lays forth several exhortations that call Timothy to remember. To remember Paul's example, but also the examples of other faithful Christians who had invested in Timothy's life. In verse 10, Paul begins primarily starting off with his own example that he set before Timothy. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. Paul says, you, however, speaking directly to Timothy now, from one man to another, Paul reminding him on a very personal level, you, however, have followed my teaching, Timothy, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Here, Paul basically takes eight or nine different aspects of his character, testimony, and example that have profoundly shaped who Timothy had become and who Timothy would become. I want you to notice the kind of lineup of the things that Timothy learned under and watched in Paul's life. He starts off with, you have followed my teaching. My teaching. Christians grow by learning sound teaching. Paul invested in Timothy's life for the gospel or for gospel good preeminently through teaching Timothy. Now the question is, well, what did Paul teach Timothy? I mean, was it how to milk a cow? Was it how to skin a deer? Was it how to build a table? Well, the easiest way to grasp what Paul taught him would be taking everything he says in First and Second Timothy together. We're not going to do that right now, but I will give you a summary. You see, First and Second Timothy, they're also known as the pastoral epistles, and they are saturated with the importance of teaching sound doctrine that flows from the gospel. And not just teaching it, but believing it. Not just believing it, but obeying it. Not just obeying it, but defending it and protecting it. And not even just that, but also passing it on. Passing on the precious deposit of God's word with faithfulness and care to other faithful Christians. So look back with me in 2 Timothy 2, just briefly here. 2 Timothy 2.2. You remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2? And what you have heard from me, there's that mentorship again, in the presence of many witnesses, that means Paul had influence over a lot, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right, look down with me in 2 Timothy 2.15. 
2 Timothy 2.15, Paul particularly exhorted Timothy as the main preaching, teaching pastor there in Ephesus for that time. He says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, literally cutting it straight. Give God's people the best from his word. Don't give them leftovers. Don't give them shoddy, sloppy sermons. Give them the richest, clearest, faithful exposition of the scriptures. And then again in verse 24 of chapter 2, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. In fact, here in chapter 3, you can turn back over in verses 15 and 16, uh, which we'll look at later in the sermon. You'll notice how Paul brings up the sacred writings and all scripture. Uh, these were things that Paul would teach Timothy. His mom and grandma would teach Timothy at a young age and that he was to hold fast to for the rest of his life. That's why he bookends this whole section with the importance of knowing scripture. Uh, being ignorant of God's word is spiritually dangerous for Christians. What did Hosea the prophet say? My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Ignorance is not always bliss, folks. We are all called to grow in our knowledge of Scripture because Scripture teaches us everything we need to know about knowing God and living a life that is pleasing to Him. Friends, the Scriptures do not give us salvation, though. Don't fall into the trap of the Pharisees. They searched the scriptures thinking that in them they would have life and they rejected the Messiah who inspired those scriptures. Uh, friends, do not ever look at the Bible as an end of itself. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The scriptures are a means to point us to Jesus. It's not the scriptures who give us life. It's the word, the logos, who inspired those scriptures, namely Jesus Christ and faith in his name. Paul moves on then from reminding Timothy of his teaching that he closely followed to now his behavior. Look at there in verse 10. He says, my conduct, my conduct. The word simply means the life you live, the life you live. It's the life you lead out before others. It's your lifestyle. It's your walk. It's the convictions and direction of your life. It's really showing everyone in clear visuals what you and I really believe. Beloved, whether we realize it or not, our conduct or the way we live is a visible sermon. You're hearing a sermon now through my lips because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But the life we live is a visible sermon. It's a visible sermon. We are preaching to everyone around us, sometimes without ever using words. Friends, if that's true, what's the visible sermon? Your life is preaching to others right now. What are people learning? What are people observing? Friends, is our conduct before others revealing we really love Jesus or are we really just in love with ourselves? 
Paul says, Timothy, you have followed my conduct. Paul's conduct commended the gospel. He then says, my aim in life. Your translation might even say my purpose in life. Brothers and sisters, do you have a life purpose? If you don't, have you ever considered writing out a life, a personal life mission statement? Have you ever sat down and tried to gather your thoughts to form some clear idea of why you get up each morning? Why you keep doing what you're doing? What is going to rekindle your heart for the Lord, especially when life gets hard? Uh, For me personally, I don't know if if I have a well-crafted mission statement per se, I do have a few pillars that hold up my life. And I first began forming these in my early 20s, and they've basically stayed the same for the last 14 to 15 years. Pillar number one of Blake Boylston's life, the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. The gospel is not merely the ABCs of how to become a Christian. The gospel is what keeps me Christian, keeps me excited about Jesus because it's good news the first day I heard it, and it's going to be good news when my faith becomes sight. You see, the gospel is the good news that we can know God. The gospel is the good news we can be known by God. The gospel is the good news we can be reconciled by God. This is the good news that we can enjoy our God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not based off any good thing in us, but only the goodness of Jesus Christ towards us. To my non-Christian friend and even my brothers and sisters in here, have you ever felt aimless in your life? Aimless. You just don't know where your life's going. Directionless. Confused. You've hit a wall. Friends, sooner or later, we find ourselves aimless in our life because we are looking for fulfillment in all the wrong things in our life. The misnomer of the midlife crisis is just a pop culture term for this issue. Looking to people, looking to possessions, looking to pleasure, looking to places, looking at everything under the sun instead of the God who made the sun. Friends, we will always be aimless and our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in Jesus. You see, in knowing Jesus Christ, God teaches us how to say, It is well with our soul. Whatever our lot, whatever our season, whatever trials he brings in our life, if we belong to Christ, it is well with our soul. You see, friends, we find our satisfaction, our peace, our rest, our identity, our fulfillment, and our meaning in Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, intercession, reigning, and future glorification, and his rescue of us, friends, everything else in life will fall into place. 
The gospel has been pillar number one in my life because I have learned whether I'm a football player, janitor, pastor, single man, married man, father, young man, middle-aged man, one day an old man maybe, I want to know the gospel. I want to grow in my understanding of the gospel. I want to have my heart lit on fire for the gospel, and I want to be bolder and clearer and more faithful in proclaiming the gospel to others. When I was around 19 or 20 years old, I remember sitting in a library, aimless because I did not know what to do with my life. Paul's words in Acts chapter 20, I read in my New Living Teen Study translation of the Bible, this particular text that gripped me about, yeah, now I'm 38, so what's the math on that? Wow, okay, 19 years ago. Paul said in Acts 20, 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Pillar number one of my life is the gospel. Pillar number two, conformity to Christ-likeness. Conformity to Christ-likeness. A number of years ago, this became so clear to me, after years of being perpetually anxious about knowing God's will for my life. Once I was tired of shaking up eight balls, trying to figure out if the uh, magic horoscope at the toy store would tell me what to do, flipping coins and doing all the other weird things Christians can do, I then understood that God's predetermined and predestined plan for my life became very clear, and that is to make me like Jesus. Romans 8, 28, and 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Friends, if you don't have a mission statement yet, I would encourage you to put that there in the top. Conformity to Christ-likeness whether in prosperity or persecution, gain or loss, being well-loved or disrespected and hated, becoming more like Christ must be my aim and your aim in life because we know that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit's aim is that for our life. Third thing I'd say that controls the convictions and direction of my life is pillar number three, shepherding the flock of God in front of me shepherding the flock of God in front of me. My first flock is my home at 9519 Farley Crest, minus the dog, Julie, Noah, Avery, and Titus. That's my first flock. That's because for a man to be qualified to the eldership, the scripture says in 1 Timothy 3, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Before anyone else in my life, I want the gospel to be believable through my life and my life to be a visible sermon so much that my wife and my kids look at me and they say, my husband and my daddy is a great sinner, but Jesus is a much greater savior and my husband and my daddy knows that firsthand. But beyond my four-person flock at my home, the 120 or so sheep of this flock is my next primary focus. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 1 and following, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as the partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why is that a pillar for my life? Why is that a clarifying aim to my life? That means the people who join CCBC and verbally commit to the church covenant here, if they continue to want me to shepherd them, they want to follow my leadership, they want to receive my counsel and care, then I will, by God's grace, as God witnessing, continue to commit myself to shepherding you with the help of God. This type of clarifying focus has been so helpful for me, especially over the last four years. When I discover when people do not want me to pastor them anymore. Whether they show that through their words, their actions, or a combination of both. That phrase, shepherd the flock of God among you, keeps me focused. Keeps me grounded. Keeps me established in my prayer life and how I prioritize my time with the people I will open up my heart, my life, and my home to. And that is the dear members of this congregation. To that end, Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 2.8 was what I told many people in October of 2019, and it is still true of my heart today. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Fourth and last pillar of my life that gives me clarity to what I'm supposed to be doing, the brevity of life. The brevity of life. When I was 18 years old, and again when I was 24 years old, I lost two friends in car wrecks. One was a high school buddy I played football with. The other one I was discipling, and he was still in high school. As I have continued to grow in my understanding of the brevity of time, I learned the Lord wakes me up when I spend more time at funerals than parties, more time with older saints who've seen a lot more than I have. And that when God brings suffering into my life, I complain less and I take it as God's wake-up call that this isn't my home. Friends, in a little while, this will be a long time ago. In a little while, this will be a long time ago. Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Those are the pillars of my life. They keep me focused, purpose, meaning, while I have breath. Friends, what's your aim in life? Paul had it. Timothy was to follow it. What's our aim? What's our purpose? What's our ambition? Kids, uh, there's no uh, age exemption status on this too. Uh, Jim Elliott was only 28 years old when he gave his life on the mission field. Think of Jonathan Edwards when he was 19 years old, pinned down 70 resolutions that really kind of guarded and gave him direction for his life. Notice what resolution 52 said at age 19. He said, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again, resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Friends, godly ambition is contagious. Godly ambition is contagious. 
Listen to some of these other resolves by other saints. Maybe they could inspire you today. Nikolaus Ludwig said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That'll sell on a t-shirt. Spurgeon said, to teach men how to live and how to die is the aim of all useful religious instruction. A brother I occasionally follow on Twitter said this a few months ago, quote, practical steps towards a cultural reformation. Find a place to put down roots. Get to a defendable position. Practice family devotions. Decrease intake of news. I'll say that again. Decrease intake of news. Pursue self-sufficiency where possible. Plant or help revive faithful churches. Build a Christian community. Gather and train men. Start a business or a school. Create Christian media, songs, books, movies, etc. Get involved in local government. Resource poor and needy in your locale. Fund like-minded brothers in adjacent communities. Now get at it. Whatever your aim in life is, it will influence others for good or for not so good reasons, but godly ambition is contagious. Paul's aim in life had a profound impact on Timothy, but so did his character. He goes on to say, did you notice? Timothy, you have followed my faith. My faith. This is speaking of Paul's daily dying to self, carrying his cross and clinging to Christ through repentance and ongoing trust. He says, you have followed my patience. The word speaks of long-suffering with weak, disobedient, and difficult people. Paul bore up with sheep who bit him, wolves who attacked him, ministry partners who abandoned him, professing Christians who betrayed him. And so not surprisingly, he tells to Timothy, next, you have followed my love. My love. This speaks of Paul's love for God and Paul's love for people. I'm sure you've heard it said many times, right? People don't care how much you know until they first know how much you care. Timothy had no doubt that Paul loved him. Paul cared for people. He shared his life with those he loved, which included Timothy. Friends, when you read First and Second Timothy together, this doesn't look like some kind of stale letter in the mail that you might get from the IRS or people trying to uh, sell you a roof. Just kidding, guys. No, those letters are just saturated and soaking wet with love. He calls Timothy not my transactional ministry friend. He calls him my child, my true child in the faith. Paul and Timothy had been together, kind of joined at the hip for about 15 years. It was a wonderful relationship. Do you remember how they first met? Acts 16, verses 1 to 3, Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, but Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Timothy had a good reputation as a young disciple of Christ, and Paul took an interest in Timothy. Friends, if anyone ever pursues you about a discipling relationship, and they're sincere, they have a track record of discipling others, don't take that for granted. They could be God's blessing to you. I'm not going to cry in this part of the sermon. I've done that in other venues, but 
I recounted the people who did that in my life, I couldn't finish the sermon. People who took an initiative to me. A brother that still has a huge impact on my life today said, I said, brother, you don't need to pay for that expensive meal. You don't need to pay for these books in my life. He said, Blake, I can always make more money, but I can't make up time spent with you. That's discipling. It's priceless. That's what's going on here in Paul and Timothy's life. One life set on fire for Jesus Christ, investing in another person's life to see the gospel advance, the church built up, and Christians conformed to the image of Jesus. There was another thing that Paul taught Timothy that seminary couldn't teach him. Textbooks couldn't teach him. And that was being steadfast in the midst of suffering. Look at me, verses 11 to 13. My steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, those are all places that were centered around and next to where Timothy grew up. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Brothers and sisters, some things are better caught than taught. And learning how to trust God, persevere, the school of hard knocks, and staying faithful to Jesus in the midst of all that is one of those things that are better caught than taught. Timothy had either heard stories or seen firsthand the junk Paul bore up with. From men telling lies about Paul, slandering him, unjustly arresting him, mocking him, running him out of town, sabotaging his reputation, stoning him nearly to death, hatefully opposed, jealously undermined by people who were full of pride. These and much more, Timothy had a front row seat to watching. It was for Timothy's own spiritual growth that God gave Timothy this education through watching and learning how Paul trusted God during suffering. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is something here for us this morning. Did you know that your trials, your afflictions, and your sufferings are not just for your faith? No. Your trials, your suffering, and your afflictions are also for the faith of those watching your life. That is an education textbooks can't give us. That is an education that seminary classes can't give us. You can't slap a PhD and MDiv next to that. Friends, who in your life would you honestly admit your faith has grown? It's been strengthened. It's been comforted because of what you've seen God doing in another Christian's life. Well, friends, it's God's will that he do that to your life and my life too. Whether that's enduring through cancer treatments or enduring destructive criticism you bear up, 
whether that's through family members disowning you because of your faith or friends who betray you and turn their backs on you because of pride or the fear of man, whether that's through financial uncertainty and loss or walking through the fog of depression and anxiety while fighting for faith. Friends, the library room of our sufferings and our endurance in those sufferings are God's way of showing off his faithfulness while also producing fruit through our weaknesses. Hence why Paul reminded Timothy of the trustworthiness of our God, that no matter what he ordains for us to face, it is right. And Paul even says this, Timothy, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. But also notice what Paul says in verse 12. Paul's trying to paint a very clear picture, not a rose-colored glasses for Timothy, about what it really looks like to be a faithful minister, a faithful Christian, a faithful pastor. He says, if you want to get serious about following Jesus, you will not live a painless life or a life of ease in your obedience to Jesus. Look what he says in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Friends, if you are looking for conflict, I mean, you like look for it. You are not living a godly life for Christ Jesus. But if you are conflict avoidant in virtually every conceivable relationship in your life, you also are not living a godly life for Christ Jesus. Godliness requires standing for truth even when falsehood is being believed and spread. Godliness requires pursuing peace, even if your personal comfort is sacrificed along the way. Godliness requires making decisions that please the Lord, but are not always popular with the unbelieving culture around us. Sometimes making decisions that please the Lord doesn't always please people in your family or even in your church. Godliness requires saying no to certain friends, no to certain music, no to certain jobs or professions or careers, no to certain relationships, being dating, ministry partnerships, or even some family relationships. Sometimes godliness requires choosing to have less friends for a while instead of running with the wrong kind of friends for a lifetime. Godliness requires putting Jesus and his pleasure first and foremost in our life which at some point will rub someone the wrong way. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, Paul says you will be persecuted. He says even in verse 13, even in that pursuit, things may even get worse. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, Deceiving and being deceived. Timothy had his hands full, didn't he? This is not exactly the first church you want to pastor right out of seminary. But this is what God had ordained for Timothy's life. And whatever God ordains for us, it might look ugly and undesirable at first. It is always right. For the life of a Christian, suffering is neither meaningless nor hopeless. For the life of a Christian, suffering is neither meaningless or hopeless. How do we know that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. 
because suffering, affliction, and persecution wasn't meaningless or hopeless for Jesus. If you are a Christian here this morning, our lives are united to Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. Friends, that means because of the spirit of Christ living in his people, we are called to suffer for Christ, like Christ, and face trials that have been customized by Jesus for us. Suffering for Christ by the power of the Spirit of Christ and humble obedience to the Lordship of Christ is the consistent way God has continued and will continue to make us more like Jesus. Philippians 1, 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Friends, maybe you're here this morning and you are being attacked. You are being persecuted. You are having unkind and unjust things said about you or maybe someone you love. How do we respond to persecution as Christians? Let me offer three words of advice. I think it's three. If it's four, forgive me. Number one, count it all joy that you're worthy to suffer for his name. Count it all joy that you're worthy to suffer for his name. This is the testimony of the apostles, right? Acts 5, 40 to 41. When they had called in the apostles, they beat him and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Number two, pray for those who persecute you and for those who say unkind and untrue things about you. Pray for those who persecute you and for those who say unkind and untrue things about you. And this is exactly what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. This counterintuitive but supernatural response to people who say unkind and untrue things about you. Paul says in several places we should even pray for the civil magistrate, for government. It doesn't matter who's in the White House, it doesn't matter. Pray for them to uphold religious freedom, to fear the Lord and to put laws into place that help make the spread of the gospel easier and for Christians to aspire to live godly, dignified, and peaceful lives. You might be sitting here, Blake, I mean, pray for those who persecute you. Paul even says in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Pastor Blake, are you actually saying that's easy? Do you think you've arrived in this? No. I'm getting worked left and right preparing this sermon. It's hard because it's supposed to be hard. If it was easy, we wouldn't need Jesus to do it. Friends, the reason it is so hard is because it takes a dependence on Christ and not yourself. Thomas Watson once said, a weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. Number three, 
the Lord's discipline is painful but necessary for our spiritual lives. The Lord's discipline is painful but necessary for our spiritual lives. Friends, Hebrews 12 makes it very clear. We suffer for all sorts of reasons. We suffer because of our sin. We suffer because of others' sin. We suffer because we live in a fallen world cursed by the fall. We suffer because also God is training us to become more like his son. Friends, in the mysterious wisdom of God, he produces the most precious fruit from our lives from the most painful afflictions he ordains. But friends, if that is where you're at, you're being disciplined, refined, tested, and it's causing you to cling to Christ more. It is proof you belong to him. If the Father does not discipline you, if the Father does not discipline me, we don't belong to him. Persecution is promised to Christians because they first hated Jesus. They will also hate the Jesus we love. Brian Chapel once said, persecution is inevitable for serious Christians. Our New Testament was written. The annals of church history have been written and preserved with the blood of the martyrs. What does that mean for us here at CCBC? It means we should pray at all times for all the saints. We should pray at all times for all the saints. Pray for Christians who are suffering for the cause of Christ, both abroad and locally. Pray for those who are the biggest target to Satan's evil attacks. These are often those who are out front preaching and teaching God's word to God's people. Alistair Begg once said, a congregation who prays for their pastors will be a better fed congregation than those who do not. Pray that God would give each of us tender hearts for our opponents. Pray that we would have a righteous anger, but also merciful and compassionate hearts. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And pray that whatever we have to face, the harder the trial, the harder we lean. The Father's discipline is painful at the moment, but it is momentary. Jesus has already gone before us. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was before him, which is also the joy that is before us, with Christ, conformed to Christ forever. Paul had reminded Timothy of how closely he imitated his life teaching and example. But Paul wasn't the only person God used to shape Timothy. Look what he says in verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Who is Paul referring to here? When he tells Timothy to continue, the word means to abide, stay the course as you were, to continue in what he has learned, knowing from whom you've learned it. Well, of course, Paul was one of those instructors. He just spent a few verses talking about it. But I want you to hold your place and turn back to chapter 1, 2 Timothy 1. You got to give credit where credit's due, right? 
Paul wasn't a one-stop shop discipler. Someone had already beat him to the punch. 2 Timothy 1.5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. You can turn back. Without having a Christian father around, Timothy's grandmother and mother invested into the spiritual well-being of Timothy. Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, you don't need a PhD, an MDiv, or the title of ordained or pastor next to your name to make an eternal impact in your child's life. So what is required? Again, I'm glad you asked. All you need is this. A daily dying to self with a deepening dependence on Christ to strengthen you day by day. An earnest prayer life filled with praise and gratitude to God, confession of sin, intercession for the saints, and an intimate communion with our Lord. And you need an open Bible, one that's not collecting dust on the shelf, but is changing your heart inside you. You need a solid gospel-preaching church to join and commit to, and then Christians to come around you to support you in this long, difficult, slow, rewarding, eternally impactful investment into the next generation of believers coming behind us. Members of CCBC, yes, we want to be mature, serious Christians, but we also want to teach young children the Bible. We want to teach young children the Bible because it's right, it's good, it's a joy, and it's necessary. That's why here at CCBC, our services are pregnant. They are full of the Bible and not jokes and cute and sappy stories. If we want to see our church full of serious Christians who are joyfully committed to following Jesus, then the content beloved, of our Sunday services must set the tone for the rest of the week. As Shai Lin has aptly said, quote, if you're involved in any kind of ministry to children, please prioritize the word. Sometimes effectiveness in children's ministry is measured by how fun it was. But kids who are taught to place fun above all will grow into adults who place entertainment above all. Friends, maybe the reason why so many churches on Sunday morning are thin, superficial, and surface level is because that's how they were trained as children. When entertainment is pumped as the primary force for children's ministry and student ministry, why do we think when they become adults, this is going to change? No, they don't want sound doctrine. They don't want long prayers. They don't want a big view of God. They want to be entertained. Friends, by God's grace, let's pray we never go down that trajectory. Kids, we want you to know that old story. The good news that God loves sinners, that he sent a Savior, and that we can be reconciled and know this good God. This is why we come to church, kids. This is why you endure with steadfastness such long services. But this big God that woke you up this morning can give you a big heart for him. 
We want to tell you the truth about Jesus so that your ambition in life is one worth having. If you got more questions to learn about Jesus, talk to your mom and dad. Come talk to me at the door. In fact, Lily Chain recently asked me a question at the door, and I literally said, I have no idea. So if you ask me questions, it's really good for my humility. Ask questions, kids. You learn, you grow by asking. Parents, don't ever let go of a childlike faith. Ask questions. When you're in a small group, raise your hand and ask the question everybody else is thinking about. Don't try to be smarter than you really are. Just ask the question, what does that word mean? I've never heard of that. How do y'all know the Bible like you do? Get over your pride. Get over all that self-esteem stuff because we all need to grow in humility anyway. So let's just ask questions and help each other grow. Does that sound good? Moving on. Parents, this is why we are so adamant about equipping and encouraging you to be the primary disciplers of your kids. Churches are to come alongside, co-disciple, co-evangelize, but not replace the parent's primary responsibility. If you want to learn more about this, come to our info meeting on ministering to students, Sunday, December 10th, 4.30 p.m. Learn more about that. Also, come back tonight because you're a faithful member, number one. And number two, you get to hear the testimonies from parents who are actually raising kids with special needs. Come back. Be encouraged and blessed by what you hear. Friends, family, worship doesn't need to be dry. We can be creative. We can be adaptable. We can be flexible. Let me give you just one word of advice on family devotions. Kids, you're my accountability partner. A weak attempt is better than resolved quitting. Don't give up, parents. A weak attempt is better than resolved quitting. What God requires is faithfulness, not a clean, quiet, or tidy living room. Can I get an amen, parents? Thank you. If not, just come hang out with us during our family divas. Timothy was exposed to the sacred writings, another way of just talking about the scriptures, because his family invested in him, Paul invested in him. And and guys, we can read the New Testament. We can assume that Silas, Barnabas, Apollos, Titus, Luke, and many other Christians were also used of God to shape Timothy's life. Discipling is rarely a one-stop shop with one person. It's a web of relationships which prevent us from making an idol out of one man or one woman's discipling ministry. A web is much healthier than a codependent idolatry of a relationship. Friends, if we are going to stay the course, we must remember and look for faithful Christians to learn from the rest of our life. But lastly, if we're going to stay the course, we must be a diligent and teachable student of God's word for the rest of our life. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Within these two verses alone, which could be its own sermon, so I'm not going to give everything I could say about it, there are several attributes about the scriptures or what we have in our hands today, the Bible or the word of the living God. I want to mention several. Number one, this is very important. Scripture was written down by man. 
but its origin is divine. Scripture was written down by man, but its origin is divine. Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by who? By God. Some of your translations say inspired by God or given by inspiration of God. The Greek word literally means breathed out, exhaled the breath, the spirit of God through the scriptures to our souls. Friends, that means every time the Bible is rightly handled and proclaimed, there is a supernatural CPR going on. We are like dead bones. We are on our last breath, and the only thing that can keep us alive is the breath of God breathing into us. This is Paul's way of emphasizing the divine origin of the scriptures. It's not of men. It's not merely about men. It's not just inspirational quotes and cliches. No, all scripture, every single word, phrase, paragraph in the original autographs of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts are from the very breath of God. Friends, that means when scripture speaks, God speaks. When scripture speaks, God speaks. Thus, we should never make the words of men greater than or equal to the word of God. Number two, scripture is supremely authoritative over our lives. Scripture is supremely authoritative over our lives. The reformers, Don, you'll like this, because he was wearing this t-shirt last week. They called this sola scriptura. It asserts that scripture alone is supreme in its authority. That means all other authorities must bow to Scripture, not the other way around. Because God is the sovereign creator and king of the universe, whatever he says goes. That means how we live as Christians must line up with what God's word says. That means as married couples, our marriages should be lining up with what God's word says. How we raise our children. Everything down to what we do and teach as a church, they must be explicitly, implicitly, or logically deduced from Scripture in one way or another. Now, there is certainly Christian freedom on areas where Scripture may be silent. Passages like Romans 14 could be considered when coming across gray areas. But whether we're talking about worship, music, sermons, programs, men's ministry, women's ministry, altar calls, baptism, Lord's Supper, missions, church, Church discipline, church buildings, evangelism, money, marriage, divorce, suffering, sin, gender, and sexuality, and the list goes on. We always start off by asking the question, what does the scriptures say? What does God say? Because when the scriptures speak, God speaks. Number three, scripture is sufficient for everything we need for godliness and ministry. Scripture is sufficient for everything we need for God and ministry, or godliness and ministry. I want you to notice the text. Notice what Paul tells Timothy scripture is profitable for. It's good for, it's beneficial for. He first says teaching. Teaching. Scripture is profitable for teaching, instruction, learning what God has said. Friends, there are many other types of teaching out there that are fine. Teaching math in your school teaching someone how to become a car mechanic or basic training or buds in the military, 
teaching someone an instrument, teaching how to shoot a basketball. But friends, teaching that flows from the very breath of God into the souls of people comes from the scriptures and the scriptures alone. That means we only grow in our walks with Christ the more we are taught the words of Christ. Scripture is also beneficial for reproof. For reproof, sometimes translated as rebuke. It means to convince, to convict, to prove someone wrong. This is how God convicts us when we hear his word taught. My sweet daughter Avery sometimes will say, when I was listening to one of your sermons, Daddy, I got heartburn while you were preaching today. That's what reproving is. A little bit of heartburn. Could be acid reflux, could be conviction. We can talk about that at the door. God, through his word, exposes our hearts. We're naked and exposed before the one to whom we must give an account. And he's exposing our sin because he loves us to free us from it. Correction. Scripture is also beneficial for correction. It means to restore to an upright position. In other words, Scripture is like a supernatural chiropractor. It literally means it straightens us out. Friends, have you ever noticed the longer we're away from church, the more we need straightening out? Have you ever noticed when we stop reading our Bibles, stop meeting up with that small group, stop going deep in the word with that brother or sister in Christ, we typically drift and get out of line? That's why we need God's correction. We need to be straightened out, reproof, Rebuke when our thinking's off, our beliefs are off, our attitude is off, our behaviors are off. Lastly, Scripture is beneficial for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. If you ever learned how to ride a bike, you probably had someone at some point walk you through that, show you how to ride a bike, tell you to watch out, look left, look right, don't go too fast, don't go into that hill without a helmet. That's positive training. I'm teaching you and even showing you how to ride a bike. Now, this word talks about the formative aspect of discipline. Scripture trains us like a father, a mother, would a child, a coach, an athlete, a commanding officer, a soldier. It equips us how to know God's word and apply it to our life. Hence why verse 17 says that Paul would reassure Timothy that if you've got faithful examples you're following and you're a diligent and teachable student of God's word, you will have everything you need to do everything God calls you to do. Look what he says in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Michael Reeves encourages us here. He says, every, every part of scripture is breathed out by a trustworthy God, and we can therefore trust it as Jesus did. To all the saints here who are in their 60s, 70s, or approaching 80s, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I do want you to stay in the church. I wonder what your most pressing questions are about life these days. It's easy to have resolves as a young kid, or maybe in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, you're in the prime of life. But what about those who are on the back nine? Saints, if you're here today and you're in your 60s, 70s, or 80s, or everyone in here paying attention, because one day we will be. If you could talk to yourself when you were 18 years old, or even 35 or 40, 
What sagely wisdom would you give yourself about living your life to the fullest for Christ? Or maybe you're here this morning and you've spent your whole life raising kids and now they're out of the home. Maybe your life has been wrapped up in a career and you don't know if you're going to be able to hold on to that career much longer. You feel like you've hit a wall. In his short book on navigating the transitions of later life, author John Wyatt gives an illustration I'm sure some of us could identify with. Listen to what he says. Marathon runners talk about the experience of hitting the wall, a sudden and overwhelming fatigue around the 20-mile mark of the race. Motivation plummets and negative thoughts flood in. Retiring might feel a bit like that for some. Certainly my own experience of retiring from medical practice as a consultant pediatrician in the NHS was surprisingly disorienting and hard. I was looking forward to retirement. I was counting the days. But when it actually happened, it was strange and difficult. When I was working as a consultant on the neonatal intensive care unit, whenever I walked into the unit, there were things that needed doing. We need to make a decision about baby X. When can you talk to the parents of baby Y? We need to start the ward round. There's a new baby we are worried about. There's a group of medical students who have turned up. What do you want to do with them? Everyone is wanting a piece of me. And my first reaction is to say, I can't cope. Please get off my back. Give me a bit of space. But of course, all these demands are sending you the message that you're an important member of the team. You've actually got something to contribute. A few months after I finally stopped working in the NHS, I returned to the hospital for some reason. I walked into the neonatal unit and nurse, whom I did not know, came up to me with a polite and professional smile. Hello, how can I help you? And I thought to myself, yes, I'm yesterday's news. I'm surplus to requirements. I don't have anything to contribute to here anymore. That's the painful reality which many of us face when we come to the end of our careers. If we place our entire identity our meaning and our purpose in our employment, then retirement will be a devastating blow. We hit the wall and there's nothing to keep us going. Certainly, I went through an unsettled period of questioning, seeking and exploring possibilities interspersed with periods of deep internal uncertainty. My brothers and sisters, whether you are in the latter back nine of your life or in the prime of life, have you been hitting a wall lately? Wondering, what's my purpose? What's my aim in life? What should I be doing with my time? What's my place in this church? And I hope this morning you and I have been freshly challenged that discipling is not for the professionals, but it's for all of God's people to get busy doing and get at it. It's life on life investment. It's encompassing all of life with another believer, a group of believers. It's a life well lived that is submissive to Jesus' disposal. It's the abandonment of self-love and the pursuit of knowing Christ and making him known. Members of CCBC, how do we stay the course in our life? We imitate closely those who imitate Jesus closely and we stay the course the rest of our life. How do we do that? We remember and look for faithful Christians to learn from the rest of our life.
and we remain diligent and teachable students of God's word for the rest of our life. Beloved, a full life lived for Jesus can happen when you know it is well with your soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful example between Paul and Timothy, even Timothy's own mother and grandmother, of investing in other believers for the advancement of the gospel, the building up of the church, to conform us to the image of your son. And yet you also give us the scriptures, not as an end, but as a means to know you and to do your will. Father, we are an often distracted people in a distracted age. Or may the text from 2 Timothy 3 today remind us what we need to stay the course. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.